Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. Dan Lust, joined by John Nucci. What's up, John? Been a minute. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me again. John, it was almost like the podcast gods did not want this episode to be recorded. I'm like, let's just do this late. And then uh, you didn't hear from me for a little bit. And John asked me what happened. Uh, what, what did happen, Dan? Sometimes you go to put your kid to bed and then uh, your kid's like, Daddy, just stay with me for a little bit. And then three hours later, you have fallen asleep in your kid's bed. Fun times. Listen, my, my back will be feeling this for the next couple of days, but it is what it is, John. But we're here. We are ready. All right. I thought uh, I was getting ghosted. So this is this is OK. This is better. No, John, you, you have a what, what do the kids say? Like you have that dog in you. Is that is that the expression? I think that is what the kids are saying. Now. You, yeah, you are a gamer. We are recording this very late, very late in the early morning hours of Friday slash Thursday night. But it's all good. We, we promise a podcast each and every week. And uh, very close to blowing that uh, that streak, but we are not going to do this. This is a Cal Ripken-esque episode. Okay, this is an Eli Manning-esque episode until Geno Smith decided to start for the Giants and screw that streak. John, what was that streak? Was it the who has the Iron Man streak in the NFL? What is it? Was it Brett Favre? I think it was Favre. Yeah, and then uh, yeah, the I, I believe it was Ben McAdoo who made the brilliant decision to start Geno Smith because. I think he said at the time he wanted to see what we have in him, even though Gino had played for uh, years in the NFL already and kind of knew well, what we had. So The joke is on the New York Giants because uh, Gino Smith ended up being a good quarterback. Okay, we're actually going to cover some, as crazy as that sounds, as crazy as this transition is, we're going to cover some of those topics today when it comes to the world of NFL football. The Brian Flores case has kind of been on ice for the last couple weeks, months, that we haven't really heard that much about it. We kind of have something today that might be percolating. We have a new party to that lawsuit that is potentially the Carolina Panthers. So talk about that. John, the main reason I had you on here is uh, you're normally our guy for live PGA updates. I couldn't get you on last episode, but I wanted to bring you on. There's been some entries on the docket as of late in the live PGA case. Patrick Reed chirping with Rory McIlroy on the, on the, on the range. They're like throwing tees at each other. So talk about that. And then, uh, you know, John, I, a little birdie tells me you're a little bit hot on the MLB Hall of Fame ballot. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always game to talk Barry Bonds and uh, maybe the new formats. People are wondering how Fred McGriff is getting voted into the Hall of Fame, but Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds still remain off. Good topics, John. What do you think? I am. I'm excited for it. Before we get into the fun stuff, John, uh, a little birdie also tells me it's your like, first uh, couple months at a brand new law firm, your first year associate. I am first year associate. I started back in September, but New York, as as you know, takes quite a while to actually uh, swear swear us in. So I was officially sworn in uh, a little over two weeks ago now. So I've I've officially been an attorney for uh, I think it's about about twenty fifteen days. So people can check the history. I think last time you were on, I'm like, next time we have you on the podcast, John, you're going to be an attorney. So listen, I I keep my notes. I pay attention. Someone has to do it. But uh, listen, congrats to you. I'm going to ask you some, uh, I don't know, maybe some advice for our, our young lawyers or our lawsuits at the end of the pod, but congratulations on officially becoming an attorney. Okay, so so let's start with this, John. The news today, uh, I think we should do this one first. Let's start with Frank Reich. Okay, so Frank Reich is named head coach of the Carolina Panthers. Frank Reich has a history being the head coach of the Indianapolis Colts. He was a former quarterback in the NFL for many, many years. He was, uh, I think, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Buffalo Bills fan, not a bandwagon fan. I grew up a Bills fan, but Frank Reich was associated with the team. I think he's uh, famous for being part of one of the largest comebacks in NFL history. But story for another day. 
So Frank Reich, again, named head coach. Press release comes out very quickly thereafter for those not following. So again, uh, I guess we should start here, right? Brian Flores, once upon a time, head coach of the Miami Dolphins. He ends up getting fired from that job, and he doesn't end up getting a job in the last head coaching carousel. So as a result of that, he ends up suing the Houston Texans, the New York Giants, and the Denver Broncos are also named. That's for a previous uh, coaching cycle, but Brian Flores' case is kind of on ice. Uh, it's filed in, it's a New York uh, class action lawsuit. But with respect to that case, at one point, we hear the name Steve Wilkes. So Steve Wilkes wanted to join the case, wanted to join the class action lawsuit. He hires the same lawyer uh, as Brian Flores. Two lawyers, Douglas Wigdor of Wigdor LLP and John Alephtarakis of Alephtarakis. And there's a couple other names, but it's Alephtarakis Law Firm for purposes of this podcast. So just remember, Wilkes is kind of a periphery player in the Brian Flores lawsuit. Periphery, primary, whatever you want to call it. So here's where things kind of get interesting this past year. So if people remember, Matt Rule starts the season as head coach of the Carolina Panthers. He gets fired a couple games into the season. And who takes over? Steve Wilkes. He was on the coaching staff of Carolina and he takes over. So there was a movement at that time. Okay, like we have another African-American head coach now head coach of the Carolina Panthers. And Steve Wilkes, by, objectively, does a fantastic job. He takes that team from the, the brink of elimination all the way basically to a playoff spot with almost the same roster. So I'm not sure what that says about Matt Rule, but it certainly says a lot about Steve Wilkes. So there was a lot of buzz. Hey, Wilkes probably coached himself into this job. He's going to get the Carolina Panthers job. So I set the stage for that, John. What happens today? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Even back then, David Tepper, the owner of the Carolina Panthers, I don't remember exactly where he gave the interview, but he said that Wilkes would probably be invited back and get the job if he did it. I think he said if he did an incredible job. And as you mentioned, objectively, he did. I mean, he led them uh, like into legitimate playoff contention with like an absolute island of misfit toys roster. The players loved him. And the Panthers interviewed Wilkes twice, but as you mentioned today, they hired uh, Frank Reich instead. John, let's just let's read the statement to give it a little bit of context. So this is from from uh, Wigdor and Alephtarakis. Quote: We are shocked and disturbed that after the incredible job Coach Wilkes did as the interim coach, kind of including bringing the team back into playoff contention and garnering the support of the players and fans, he was passed over for the head coach position by David Tepper. There is a legitimate race problem in the NFL. And we can assure you we'll have more to say in the coming days. So it's a pretty good, powerful thing. I mean, I, I saw it and I'm like, you know, I'm not sure if the fact that Wilkes just doesn't get this job is by itself actionable. But obviously the larger context of Wilkes' involvement in the case, what's gone in the last couple of years, you know, it's not, not crazy that they would put out a statement. So, John, you you keyed me up to this. This is a kind of an interesting turn to this. So let's say you're sitting here and you're like, why are John and Dan bringing up this? That's just some random lawyer. Why are we giving this lawyer free publicity by putting out a, a random tweet? Like, are they actually going to bring in the Panthers? So we'll give a, we'll give credit and, and or blame uh, whoever, whatever perspective that you're on. So Mike Florio over at Pro Football Talk, he's a former lawyer. I think he's, he's buddies with Dan Wallach. He's shouted, out, shouted us out a couple of times. Uh, so I, you know, I have nothing Nothing, nothing uh, good or necessarily good or bad to say about Mike Florio, but he puts out an article that uh, essentially points out, let's say like one of these like proverbial smoking guns, right? He he basically goes, and we'll, we'll get into the tweet in a minute, but that Frank Reich's daughter. So today is January 27th, you know, on January 8th, how Florio phrases it as 90 minutes after the end of the Carolina Panthers season, that Frank Reich's daughter puts on Twitter that she's been hired by the Panthers. So... Let's let's give this its proper context and we can break it down. 
Hannah Reich Fairman writes on Twitter on January 8th of 2023, quote, I'm happy to announce that I have officially accepted a job with the Carolina Panthers. Hashtag keep pounding. I am thrilled to be combining my passion for the NFL with my professional experience in marketing 2023 already starting with a bang. So listen, we're just we're just telling you what's out there. We're trying to kind of give you a little bit of the feel. Again, credit or blame to Mike Florio, but we got to talk about it because there is an impact here. And there is potentially more... Uh, assuming, assuming, assuming everything to be to be lining up, an actual lane to potentially bring in the Panthers because, right, the fix, as they say, might have been in. So, John, thought, thoughts on this? I have I have some analysis potentially on this, but uh, you know, I, I'm like I'm like kind of I'm like, are we okay reading this girl's tweets? But uh, you know, I, I can see a lane where this is where this is a legitimate story. Yeah, I, I mean, now like. As you said, there's, there's really nothing wrong with this uh, tweet on its own, just announcing a new job. Uh, however, the, the, question, the question becomes, in light of, of the Panthers not hiring Wilkes, is did the Panthers already know that Reich was going to be hired this entire time? So did they know back on January 8th uh, when they hired his daughter uh, that they were going to inevitably hire him? And were Wilkes' interviews kind of just done as just basically just to satisfy their uh, requirements under the Rooney rule. And that sort of takes it back to the uh, Belichick texting the wrong Brian issue that we saw with the Brian Flores case. Yeah, there's some, so there's some pretty clear overlap. And again, I, I imagine most of our listeners are familiar with the, with the what happened with Flores, but Flores thinks uh, he's going to get the Giants job. He gets text from Bill Belichick and he's like, Hey, heard you getting the job. Congrats, Brian. Trans, uh, you know, that's not exactly what we said, but he's like, thanks coach, but I haven't interviewed yet. That seems odd. Bill Belichick's like, sorry, wrong coach Brian in my phone. So Texas meant for Dayball, who ends up getting the Giants job. And, uh, you know, Flores is kind of sitting here like, wait, like, why do I have to go on these interviews? Does Dayball already have the job? And, you know, truth be told, Dayball ends up getting the job. So Flores basically said these, these interviews were sham. These were sham interviews. And he makes a similar allegation as to what happened in a previous coaching cycle when he went to interview for the Denver Broncos head coaching job, that, that boxes were just being checked. But he did not have a legitimate chance to get these jobs. He was just being, you know, I don't know inter- interviewed for the sake of being interviewed. So, you know, John, you you laid it out. And again, like we we try to bring the stories that aren't just pure speculation. I, I really do think, and it's it's not really the, the Panthers' call whether they get brought into the case or not and edit as a new party. So, you know, between the Wilkes not getting it, which is somewhat interesting, let's just say, like, I, and I'll take it one step back. John, did you see the story this week that Brock Purdy is going to be named the 49ers quarterback in next next year in 2024? <laughs> no, I did, I did not see that, but that's not surprising. It's a little early. But, but think about it. It's not that different. It's not that different. Someone takes over in the middle of the year that like that that you know wasn't otherwise going to be considered to be the quarterback. And like I saw there was a tweet from Schefter, one of these like, you know, reportedly he's probably going to be the starter next year. So over Jimmy Garoppolo, over Trey Lance, like, okay, so like if people were like, of course Brock Purdy's going to get the starting job. And maybe we're paying attention to the, the 49ers more because they're in the middle of the playoff race. It could be if you're a Carolina Panthers fan, like, oh, it was a virtual certainty that Wilkes was going to get the job after he rallied the team in this roster. So if you think it's odd that Purdy doesn't get the starting quarterback, you know, that he's not named the quarterback and he gets it, it's somewhere in that level, right? It's not like 100% foolproof. There's a conspiracy going on, but it's like it's somewhere tangible. And then and you have the text with the, the daughter come out. So the question is, this right if if the daughter um and we looked at you know i don't think it's public what exactly role she was hired for but it says you know experience in marketing so i imagine it's an nfl marketing position 
John, would you feel different if Frank Reich's daughter was hired basically on January 8th to be the team's general counsel? Would that would that make the story a little bit different? Well, yeah, that would certainly change the dynamic uh, a little bit there. But yeah, I, I, we'll, we'll see what comes of this. I, I don't I, I'm not sure that there's necessarily a connection, but it, it could be a pretty interesting coincidence. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure I have that much more to add here, but I, I think, you know, again, this legal story as much as a football story, there are certain um roles. Like actually, I'll, I'll give you a really good one. John, did, do you remember the day? Uh did you well, you would you didn't take New York practice. Is there a version of like Pennsylvania practice? Is that a class? I took it's the like, New York law exam. I took the New York law course. It might be the same thing. There, there's a class that we took, at least I went I went to Fordham, you know, and they're like they teach you. You can take a New York-based law class. So it's like very specific things. So at least, you know, I teach you random things. But in my New York practice class, and I imagine they have a version of this class in, in maybe every every law school, but they teach you about personal service, right? And you can, you drop, uh, like you try to serve a company, like you can't serve the janitor with legal paperwork and not be binding on the entire company. So there is an understanding in the law that like only certain employees or certain officers within a corporation, so a high-ranking official can bind the company. So uh, somebody can tell me what this is, unless she's like the chief marketing officer. And I'm not even, I'm not even sure that that would cut it. I'm not sure if that moves the needle on a coaching hire. So like, yeah, we hired Frank Reich's daughter. The fix was in because we hired her and she's not, I don't, I don't think she's an intern. We hired her to be an intern. We hired her to work in the mailroom. Therefore the fix was in, you know, obviously the higher that position is, if she was hired as, I don't know, like the, the general manager of the team or, you know, the, something fairly high, but general counsel, I would think something a little bit more, but in terms of the fix being in Frank Craig's daughter being hired as for a role in marketing, I'm not really sure I see that. I'm, I'm pretty sure that someone can just get, get a job in the NFL. And if Frank Reich had the best interviews, and he obviously does have a strong coaching track record, uh, and he was a former player, obviously seems pretty qualified in his own right, that those those net, those could just be a coincidence. But yeah, I, I have to hear more on her on her position, her qualifications before I'm ready to jump in and say, like, the fix was in all along, and that's why Steve Wilkes is not the head coach of the Carolina Panthers. Agreed. Okay, so obviously we'll keep an eye on that. That's the most recent story in our docket. Just kind of came out while you know I, while I was in a deposition today. I got that news, so uh, I knew we'd be talking at some point. Okay, and the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. I, I think uh, you know we're in the the vicinity of like rules and bylaws and why things exist and random committees. You know, we're close enough to the legal world here. We had this past week Scott Rowland get voted into the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame by normal traditional standards. That's getting 75% of the vote from the media members. That's the one that people will recall. You're on the ballot for 10 years. If you don't get on the ballot, tough luck. So guys like A-Rod didn't make it. You know, Billy Wagner didn't make it. But Scott Rowland makes it. And I grew up, Scott Rowland's a fine baseball player. No problem with that. Is he Barry Bonds? Is he Roger Clemens? No. So, what does Major League Baseball do? Last year, I guess in November, they announced that they were going to create a, a new committee, a contemporary committee, to kind of uh, elect people to the Hall of Fame, you know, from 1980 or later. So for some people, you read the writing on the wall, like, what is this, like, uh, like a little steroid commission? They're just going to put people together that maybe did steroids, maybe didn't use steroids. But what's curious is that who's voting on this? It's the players and the executives. So this committee that's, or the group that's put together for this Contemporary committee includes Barry Bonds, who's been off the ballot now, uh, who was on the ballot for 10 years. He's not going to get in the traditional way. It includes Roger Clemens, right? Some two high profile names. Another name it included was Fred McGriff. Uh, so Fred McGriff is a unanimous, gets 16 votes in this contemporary committee. And those are your two members of the baseball Hall of Fame class from a player's perspective, Scott Rowland and Fred McGriff. 
So John, I lay it out. I, I'm told again, per sources, you're, you're pretty hot about this particular topic, or at least you were before it, it hit midnight and like the Cinderella shoe happened. But go ahead, go off here. I, I, I want, I'm curious what your perspective is here. Uh, yeah, my perspective is, is which I, I, I believe is a lot of people's perspective, is just that baseball writers just should absolutely not be deciding who is in the Hall of Fame and who is not. I, I, there might not be any group of people that are more self-righteous than baseball writers that uh, you know, with their Hall of Fame votes between the one guy refusing to vote for Jeter for no good reason, the long, weird justifications for their decisions, like they're, like they're drafting the 28th Amendment. Uh, it, it, it's just, it's a horrible process. They consistently display just a selective outrage. Uh, so for instance, David Ortiz, widely known as testing positive for steroids. Apparently that is not an issue, uh, but it is for everyone else. Barry Bonds, Manny Ramirez, who in my opinion, all of these people deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. I'm not saying they don't. Uh, it's just odd that they take a stand on some uh, and they don't on others. But uh, yeah, just just kind of wanted to point out that that they're they're very inconsistent. I generally disagree with their approach to it, and I believe that it should be a decision up to the actual players and the executives who are a lot closer and know who these players are. I'm not going to disagree with you. I ha- I've had a similar take with respect to the media. Like and this is this is me. I mean, I grew up a San Francisco Giants fan. It's like, how is Barry Bonds not in the Hall of Fame? Like, if, if we're all going to acknowledge as fans that we know that, like, hey. Most of these guys were doing steroids in that era, but like Barry Bonds was the best baseball player of that era, right? And and what we we're never going to know pre-steroids, post-steroids, but like I don't know, Barry, you can make an argument that that pre-steroids when his numbers just looked kind of like normal and his head was a normal size, uh, that that Barry Bonds was a Hall of Famer in his own right, yep. right? Back in the day, he was a, a prize free agent. He was like he was almost like the LeBron uh, Miami Heat tour when he's like I'm taking my towns to Miami. Bonds was a uh, an outfielder for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and he takes his talents to San Francisco. So getting back to the 90s, early 90s, Bonds was a premier player. So, John, you you lay it on. We should put some names to this. So this, this like, contemporary committee is created. It consists of, as you just said, players, actually not just players, Hall of Fame players that you think you right, takes one to no one, takes a Hall of Famer to no one. Right. I'm okay with just players voting on this, but for this committee, they have half, uh, half Hall of Famers, half executives, and they sprinkle in um, a couple media and historians. So here are the players, Greg Maddox, Jack Morris, Ryan Sandberg, Lee Smith, Frank Thomas, Alan Trammell for executives. I don't know if everyone's going to know these, but the headliners, I think are Theo Epstein, uh, Kim Ang, um, there's some other names here, but people can look up the list. So John, they did what we, what we as fans, right. Or I guess we're like pseudo media members, you and I, right. Do we, by the way, we're getting you credentials for a PGA event. We think we're I think that'll be the test shot, of the yeah. media members. We're going to give it a shot. I mean, I, I cover it enough. So, as an aside, we will decide if you, if we are able to get credentials for a PGA event, if we are actually members of the media in this podcast, we'll see if we, we've reached that level. But, you know, whatever, we, we as human beings, John, we have been clamoring to get the media out of it. The media are voting entirely on the traditional Hall of Fame ballot. So, we give this, we get this new ballot, 16 votes. Fred McGriff gets 100% of the vote. So apparently this committee, consisting of Hall of Famers, executives, and a couple media and historians, all of them think that Fred McGriff is a Hall of Famer. Now, John, Fred McGriff was on the normal ballot for 10 years, right? What, what was like the highest he ever got? He never got 75. He never got 75. He never got 65, 55, or 45. The highest he ever got was around 39%. So he never actually reached 40% on the baseball writer's ballot. But uh, his first year on this one that's made up of actual players and executives, he gets 100% of the vote. 
I mean, McGriff's like 500 home run club, right? That's like, uh, we'll say his main main criterion other than being an overall good guy. Yeah, I mean, he's, 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 he's I don't think he oh. got 500. I think he's, he's 493. Yeah, he's a little, he's a little short, but I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll round up here. We round up on this podcast. Fine. I guess that's fair. But uh, what, what bothers me a little bit, I mean, like, I'm looking at this contemporary committee, uh, the contemporary ballot. Don Mattingly gets eight votes, Kirk Schilling gets seven votes, uh, Dale Murphy gets six, and then uh, Albert Bell, Barry Bonds, Clemens, and Palmera all get under four votes. We don't know exactly how many, just says under four. So what, what the Hall of Fame is becoming, uh, again, uh, whether the, the rules need to be changed, whether we as lawyers need to go in and do an audit of this process to figure out what's going on, Derek Jeter can't just get one vote, like not get that vote because like someone wasn't feeling it that day. Like it has to be, it has to be based on merit. It can't be based on just like popularity or someone's politics. Like this is not a political podcast by any means. Kurt Schilling like, has a pretty strong baseball resume. Like, and people can say what they want about Kurt Schilling and his politics and whatnot. But like, you know, that, that I don't, I don't think should be criterion for whether you make the hall of fame or not. Someone doesn't like your politics, unless you're a bad person, you're committing crimes against humanity. You know, and maybe I'll make the argument you shouldn't be allowed in. Like, who, who for what? Uh, if we're just basing this on merit, how are Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens not in the Hall of Fame? Like, something is going wrong in this process. If like Scott Rowland and Fred McGriff are more deserving for the Hall of Fame than Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, so I, I'm just—it's the transparency that gets me here. Like, and this is, just seems like a popularity contest. Like, you have to be really good, and then you have to be popular. Like that—that that seems to be the criterion. Yeah, I agree. And I agree on Kurt Schilling, too. It's also pretty impressive that he pitched with uh, ketchup in his sock in that one game. Too. <laughs> Are you a Yankees fan? I forget this. I am. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so you that, that's that's why you don't like Big Poppy and you like Kurt Schilling. Got it. I, 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 I respect David Ortiz. I just I just had to make sure everybody understood that he did test positive for steroids. He was on the Mitchell report. Correct? He was on the Mitchell report. Yes. Yeah, like I don't want to say anything bad about Big Pop. He's one of the most beloved athletes in the world, and he's he's you know one of my favorite baseball quotes of all time after the Boston bombing marathon. We're not gonna we're not gonna say it on this podcast, but like I I you know I I get Big Poppy's really popular, and like pe- people hate A Rod, but like A Rod's numbers are really good, and he's he's not gonna make the Hall of Fame. He's just not, and I I don't I don't like and again A Rod he's he does his own thing. People can dislike him, but since when is the Hall of Fame? Like the whole of popular baseball players, like A-Rod is one of the best baseball players of all time, just on a number sense. So I, I don't love this process, but, you know, maybe maybe that's the point of this. It's just the point to spark conversation. Like, I know people, John, people get pissed off in, in basketball that everybody makes the NBA Hall of Fame. Like, it's just like, hey, if you average 20 points a season, like you're in, don't worry about it. I think for historically, we put so much emphasis on the baseball Hall of Fame that I think there should be a little bit a little bit more transparency as to what goes on. But I guess we're not going to get that, John. We can't have our cake and eat it too. Yeah. I mean, I, I absolutely agree on all fronts. It's, it's hard to transparency is correct. Cause it's hard to, hard to say it's legitimate. The baseball hall of fame is without the all-time hits leader, all-time home runs leader and all-time Cy Young award winner. So uh, it, it's just difficult to, to see how legitimate the baseball hall of fame is without those three guys in it, especially since uh, baseball, I, I think Pete Rose should be in too, but. That's a question. Another discussion. Uh, let's let's. Well, let me let me ask you this, and then and then we'll we'll call it a day. Do you think if baseball players could vote, do you think in this exact ballot we looked at some of those? I know Pete Rose wasn't eligible because he he's not a player that that I think retired after 1980. I think yeah, I think that's the criterion. But do you think Pete Rose would have made this list with Fred McGriff? I think absolutely. I, I think he absolutely would have. I'm so surprised. Do you think baseball players like Pete Rose? They just don't like 
Barry Bonds? I think there is a different, there's a different attitude towards cheating versus just like betting on games. And I believe Pete Rose, if I, if, is Pete Rose one of those, did, did he, he never bet against his, his team, right? So it's always at least, at least that's what he claims. He, he claims he didn't, but baseball, yeah. I think, says otherwise. Yeah. Well, I think there's a different, I think there's a different attitude towards betting on, on a handful of games where he claims were not against his and taking steroids. I was actually surprised that Bonds and Clemens only got or got less than four votes in this selection committee, this, this new contemporary committee. I thought they would have got more from the players themselves, but uh, I guess not. Well, the, the, the press releases when this committee was created was like Clemens and Bonds lead contemporary committee. It's like they got no votes, so clearly they don't lead it. Clearly there's some disconnect between what's being premised to us as clickbait and like the actual uh, ballot behind the scenes. But, okay, we just wanted to, you know, we're not going to talk about the, the rest of the nonsense that goes on in baseball. You know, may, maybe an episode for another time about salary cap circumvention, the Steve Cohn luxury tax rule, which I think is nonsensical, but we'll bring on a, bring it up when we need to. But, okay, let's let's close with this, John. You are a golf guy. We'll see how much of you are official Listen, you, John, you can tell the PGA, you are our official golf law correspondent. You've written more golf law articles for conductdetrimental.com and maybe anyone in the universe in the last uh, 365 days. So maybe I'm going to say that golf is discriminating against golf law correspondents if you don't get credentialed at a PGA Tour event. So I love having you on for a number of reasons, but I, I do love your golf takes. Uh, I, John, you are... Oh, I'm going to admit this to you. Are you ready for this? You ready for this compliment? Yeah, let's hear it. You are one of a handful of people that I get push notifications from. Anytime you tweet, anytime you sneeze on Twitter, it comes to my phone. Did you know that? Is that creepy? Is it creepy for me to admit that to you? It's not creepy. I appreciate it. I, I also have push notifications on for you. So the, the feeling is mutual. Oh, John, listen, did we just become best friends? Is that what just happened here? <laughs> it's just such a, it's an interesting lane that happens with the PGA and live stuff. And, and I'd say, Yes, just because I not not that I'm looking, not that I'm keeping tabs on you, but I'd say like you know seventy percent of your tweets right around there are like all in the PGA Live uh, lane. So I, I learn a lot of stuff on that front. So there's two golf stories that came up this week in the world of PGA Live. I'm gonna let you break them down, but I I, I didn't want you to forget about the Rory Patrick Reed stuff. I had a I had a fun Patrick Reed question on my law school exam. So I I, I just find Patrick Reed to be hilarious, but. Uh, it's just me, but John, John, take it away. What's new in the latest, the latest legal world concerning the, the concerning the live PGA lawsuits? Fill us in. It's been a minute since you've been on the show to break it down. I, I, I am a chief golf law correspondent, but I'm not a litigator. So I will preface this by saying I didn't realize that every time you refresh the page on Pacer with a list of filings that it charges you, by the way. So I was sitting there for the last three weeks, just refreshing a dozen times a day waiting for new filings. And I got like a $68 charge, but that's neither here nor there, but for some background, <laughs> and, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm not letting you forget about that, but keep going. <laughs> for uh, some background in this case, uh, in case you're not refreshing Pacer like I am, the PGA Tour has been trying to depose uh, Yasir Al-Rumayan, who is the governor of the Saudi Public Investment Fund and has requested uh, permission from the court to do so. The Public Investment Fund and Al-Rumayan have, have resisted those efforts largely on the basis of uh, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which is it's a federal law that essentially makes foreign governments and leaders immune from lawsuits in U.S. courts. However, there is a commercial activity exception to that rule where a government or leader could face trial 
uh, if a claim is based on basically their their social their commercial conduct. So it's almost like minimum context type of test. Um, so to that end, the PGA Tour has now filed a motion for leave uh, in order to actually add both the Saudi Public Investment Fund and I'll remind as defendants in their countersuit for tortious interference. Uh, and his text, actually I'll remind text and emails uh, with Bryson and others were included in the tour's presentation during, during a recent discovery hearing uh, and plenty of other documents that the tour relies on. They are essentially claiming that the Public Investment Fund and Al Rumayan uh, essentially control live uh, from the top down. They're not simply investors and to that end that they should be able to, they should be added as defendants uh, so that they can actually depose them and get some uh, like discovery there. I mean that would that would make some for some very interesting depositions. Having uh, just taken a or defended a very long deposition today, I guess a little little bit of a ground rule. There's very few things. Depositions are fair game. You can ask kind of whatever you want at the deposition. There's very few, and again, it depends on what state you're in, but very few things that you can direct a witness not to answer. You know what's what's the problem? You might get called back. You might get in front of a judge. They'll mark it for a ruling. The judge will say, "Hey, he had to answer that question." You'll come back, and you could just say, "You can pull a." you know, Jim Harbaugh or a Roger Goodell and be like, I don't recall. And you can get around the question. Otherwise, there's creative lawyering ways to get around it. But um, yeah, imagine, John, if these people were called in for a deposition, brought in as direct defendants in the case, uh, that would take a whole other turn. We just got done doing it in a podcast episode, I don't know, two weeks ago about, you know, the Saudi public investment fund potentially buying WWE. So mm-hmm. there'd probably be some interesting questions there that uh, I wouldn't mind being a fly in the room for that particular deposition to see what the overall plan is but yeah i mean i don't know i i i find it so interesting john how long has this lawsuit been going on for what is it like it's a, it's um, a year just over it's yeah it's been it's been all, about a year now yeah and it's actually not even scheduled for trial until next january how, uh, so. how does that but how does that come out now like you know there's there's to to amend a complaint to bring in it you bring in a new party during the course of litigation if something comes up obviously I mean, I don't think that's necessarily something new that these individuals are maybe running you know, behind live in some way, shape or form. Do we know what what kind of I know, start, started this conversation anew? Something came up during discovery, some new type of uh, facts that are coming out? Yeah, that, that is what happened. So uh, the, first of all, the PGA took a while to actually file their uh, tortious interference counterclaim. Uh, but after that, there's some recent documents that came out, uh, which uh, also a lot of these documents are under seal. So we're not able to see them. But PGA Tour has been relying on what they call a shareholder agreement, where essentially they are claiming that these documents state that Al Rumayan and the Public Investment Fund need to approve every contract and run the day to day, and they are the de facto officers uh, of Live Golf. So uh, these are relatively new developments that have come out, and uh, the PGA Tour uh, apparently believes that it rises to the level that they should be added as defendants to the suit. So. Well, let's see. I mean, it would it would certainly create an interesting headline and and maybe a re, like lawsuits tend to go away once there's pressure applied on people individually or, or the pockets, we'll say. So maybe that's maybe that's the MO. I, well, I, I don't want to move on if we don't if we don't have to. Do you have any more on that particular update? Because I'm curious about the Rory Patrick Reed stuff. I know it's, it's a, somewhat of a crossover. I mean, so what you just said about adding people and putting pressure on uh, Jody Balsam, friend of the program, even she also added that by adding Saudi, uh, the public investment fund and Al Rumayan, it, it really strengthens the argument for discovery and could even uh, eventually either change or end the lawsuit. 
Um, so we'll see if, if who knows, if they've been very eager or very anxious to avoid discovery throughout this entire process. So if there's added pressure for them to actually be exposed to discovery, we'll see what happens there. Let's do this. Uh, let's, let's make it as, as easy as we can. Patrick Reed's been in the news a couple times these last, uh, last week or two for this fun intersection, John, which I know you're a fan of, this golf law intersection. So about a week ago, Patrick Reed threatens another defamation lawsuit against CNN, demanding an on-air public apology within five days from Jake Tapper and Bob Costas. If not received, he is, quote, reserving the right to sue for well in excess of $450 million. I'm reading one of your tweets on your illustrious Twitter feed, JNucci23. But yeah, I, I saw it. Somebody, somebody asked me if I wanted to comment on it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm certainly not going to be the one to say that a lawyer is doing something uh, maybe, I don't know, nefarious when they're out here like trigger happy on the defamation button. I think Jake Tapper and Bob Costas used the term like blood money from Patrick Reed. Um, but story for another day. So you got Patrick Reed out here threatening another defamation lawsuit, which I don't know, five days have passed since then. John, have we gotten a public apology from Costas or a defamation lawsuit? Have we gotten either? We haven't gotten either. And uh, I will also say that Patrick Reed was never actually even named in that broadcast. His name was ever, never even used. Um, so <laughs> that, that's another interesting twist of that, too. <laughs> well, yeah, this, this, that, that lawsuit, I actually brought up, you and I, I remember you came on the show whenever it was a year ago, and we were just like laughing at the, uh, the, <laughs> the Patrick Reed complaint when he's like, I'm suing everyone on the Golf Channel for defamation, and and like and like they had to put out this complaint about proximate causes, and they're like, they're like, well, like what, Patrick, like what, what's happening? Why, why do you think your reputation's being harmed? And he's like, well, fans are saying, boo, you're the excavator, you're digging that ball out. Like this is why your grandparents don't want to see you. And I'm like, this doesn't seem to have anything to do with Golf Channel. It just seems like people don't like Patrick Reed independently. So yeah. I think Patrick Reed needs to reassess his legal decisions because he just kind of looks comical uh, at every step with whoever is directing him. But uh, the story that pops across my radar, I see uh, this video kind of kind of going pseudo viral. It's Patrick Reed, Rory McIlroy. What's the event this week? What is it? The uh, is it the Farmers one this week? What's the event that people are playing? This uh, week? It's the Farmers, but they're they're in Dubai actually for a different for another tournament. I don't know exactly the full context of this, but you had Patrick Reed going to shake Rory McIlroy's hand and. It's a kind of icy interaction. And then like Patrick Reed kind of like flicks a T at, at Rory. What, what, like, I'm not going to say it's assault, but it was like very odd. You want to paint a little bit of a picture? The word is that Patrick Reed run up to, I think it was Rory's caddy to wish him a happy new year uh, about three and a half weeks into the new year, which is another, another odd thing. But I uh, went up to him to wish him a happy new year and then tried to say the same thing to Rory and Rory completely ignored him. Kept looking straight, totally uh, didn't didn't even acknowledge that he was there. So Patrick Reed kind of kind of half laughed it off and then started walking away. And uh, as he as he turned back, he kind of threw a, a tee at him, which Patrick Reed later revealed to be a uh, branded of his uh, his team at Live Golf. Uh, so that he he said that that was some some reason of why he threw the tee at him, but. Uh, in an interview later, Rory ended up coming out and saying that he was uh, served with a subpoena on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day uh, by Patrick Reed's attorney. So Patrick Reed's attorney. Uh, so he, he kind of said Patrick Reed is uh, essentially living in a in a I, I don't know I don't know if he said fantasy land or something something along those lines. 
I'm telling you, the, the world that, that Patrick Reed sees from a legal perspective doesn't seem to exist most of the time. Uh, so I can I can confirm Rory, but you know, golf.com, they're talking about this, this, you know, this kind of icy exchange. So Rory kind of gave a comment that like, why, like, why are you annoyed at Patrick? And explaining since the live stuff, you know, he had no problem with him. And since the live stuff happened, yes, they've had issues. And then Rory explained that, that, you know, Patrick uh, served him with some type of subpoena, I guess, over the holidays. There was an affidavit of service, I guess, that was indicating that some type of service was made on Rory McIlroy on Christmas Eve, 3.50 p.m. So, yeah, that's that's um, that's a way to get someone really pissed off at you. I, I, I would think so. Yes, obviously, service is part of the game. But like, what time do you know that Rory McIlroy is probably going to be at home on Christmas? You send out the process server there like. I think Roy's got a legitimate gripe. If he wasn't mad at Patrick Reed already, like that's a pretty, uh, and, and sometimes the lawyers do this and Patrick maybe didn't know when a service would be effectuated, but like, that's pretty, that's pretty low, right? Like you're with your kids. It's Christmas, got good vibes going on. You have the kids are going to the Christmas trio. Everyone's in their pajamas, having a good time, hot cocoa. And all of a sudden you get served with legal papers. Never a good time when you're served with legal papers. Yeah. I, I've never been served with legal papers and I hope I don't as a result of this segment. But it, yeah, it, it seems like Rory has a legitimate beef. I also, I don't know if you saw, but uh, Rory, Rory also, uh, when they asked him about the tea that everyone was talking about being thrown at him, he said he didn't see it, but if the roles were reversed, he said he'd be expecting a lawsuit. So. <laughs> well, Patrick Reed is very trigger happy with these, these lawsuits. So anyway, more, more fodder to me. I have a section of my, uh, I'm the, my, my law school class where I'm like, I look at complaints and I'm like, this is what not to do. Don't do this. Don't, don't, don't do this part. Like it doesn't really make any sense, but anyway, John, yeah. Anything else on the live PGA stuff? I have some other stuff for you, but live PGA. I think that is about it. Okay. So let's do this. As we close the show, a reminder, our podcast sponsored by Themis Bar Review, top bar prep company in the entire galaxy. John, you are an alum of uh, Themis Bar Review Prep. I don't know if Themis was around when I took the bar. I'm now 10 years out, but uh, listen, if Themis was around, I would have used it. So we're going to call this segment, uh, we'll try something new. We'll call this like the, uh, the lawyer advice segment sponsored by Themis Bar Review. So I, I, you, the, I didn't really know what I was going to do for this segment until you just said something. So you got hit with a $65 pacer charge? I did, yeah. And, and as, I, as I said, I'm not a litigator, so I, I'm not familiar with pacer. Okay, so my tip, my practice tip is going to be, uh, I, I've heard some horror stories. Maybe we'll use this, this for a segment. Some stuff that happened to me, some horror stories, stuff that happened to you, or whatever, you know, whatever we can do it. So this is like a very niche one, but, you know, the world of Westlaw and Lexus, me personally, I've always viewed Westlaw as being like Coke. And if you don't have Westlaw, it's like, okay, I'll guess I use Lexus. Lexus is kind of like Pepsi. This is to me, listen, this is my opinion. Not getting a, not going to suing me for defamation, but I grew up with Lexus. So... There, there are stories that I've heard this, uh, heard this really in two forms, that someone didn't understand the transaction charges on a Westlaw or a Lexus, and they were going in and maybe they went to the stuff that was out of plan. Sometimes that's like the trial court document stuff. This is very nerdy stuff for our, for our lawyers listening, but they go in like secondary sources, they're popping around the treatises and uh, like the notes section of like a regulation, and they are running up a really large tab. Sometimes it's per transaction, you'll get billed like for the amount of searches you do. Uh, and other times your firm might have a plan that bills you for the, for the actually, uh, I think this is less common as far as I know, I've never been in a firm that has it, but like the running time that you were on Westlaw. So when that window is open. So I've, I've heard stories where someone racked up like tens of thousands of dollars doing what should have been a very simple search and they just didn't know. So I, I've heard those stories enough. 
Anytime I have joined a new firm, I, I like, you know, oh, what's the healthcare plan? How many PTA do, PTO days do I get off? Like now I'm like, what is the what is the legal research plan before I get fired one week in for running up a huge charge? So that's my very practical piece of, of advice. John, you're lucky you only got hit with a $65 bill. John, is that coming out of your pocket or the firm's pocket? Coming out of mine. I mean, that's uh, that, that's okay. I hopefully uh, am not also running up bills on, on Lexus or Westlaw now. So I'll, I'll need to go double check that now that you mentioned, but I'm pretty, uh, sure, I'm pretty sure I'm safe on that front, but guess yeah, never, important. never be too careful. Never yeah, be too it's careful. Worth, it's worth checking. So John, you are two weeks into your official legal career as being a lawyer. You're at a, at a new firm. I'll leave it to you. Uh, I don't know. Is there any, any advice uh, that you and your two weeks in have picked up? You know, this, this doesn't have, there's no correct answer. This is whatever you, you feel is advice that you would give to someone that maybe is going to be a first year associate coming up anything ho- horrific that uh, you've seen. And, and, you know, use your judgment here. You're brand new hired at firms. So don't say anything too bad. <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, I, st- I technically, I mean, I was sworn in, in a couple of weeks ago. I started in September. I would say that the most important thing for a new attorney is to find a mentor and do it early. And don't be afraid to ask that mentor every question that you need to, whether it's a stupid question, whether you feel like it's a stupid question, I'm sure it's a question that they had uh, at one point, and that, that's that's what I've learned so far. And my mentor has been uh, instrumental for me so far in in the couple of months that I've been practicing. And uh, that that would be my best piece of advice for new lawyers. Okay, so let's let's stick with that for a minute. And uh, John, did you see our fancy video by the way that we put out uh, on social? We did like a little breakout clip from this. Yeah. So maybe. Uh, Maybe people, if we can put this video stuff out, people will appreciate these segments. I, I want to do give people advice and listen, not just our, our sports breakdown. When people say mentor, I think a lot of time it's just kind of like, oh, it's like networking. It's just like amorphous. What, what actually is networking? What is a mentor? I think mentors can be very, very helpful. I don't think I w- would have decided to start publishing uh, if I didn't have the right mentors. Uh, I, two people in particular, one, one at each firm that really pushed me to start publishing and getting uh, kind of do, doing stuff outside of the firm. So I, I owe those people a ton. Those are people that are invested in you, your long-term development, whether or not it's at you know a firm, they just want to help you grow. I think people tend to stay at firms longer when they don't feel trapped there, that it's a decision of their own to stay there and they can flap their wings and fly. But the people that leave firms just feel like they're trapped and the walls close. And so that was really good advice that I got. But but on that, you know, mentors are used for a lot of reasons for stuff like that, number one. But number two, there's a thing, right? If you're brand new to a field, John, you're a brand new lawyer. There's going to be stuff that you don't know that you've never encountered before. You're allowed to ask questions. You should not, should never hold them back. But what a real mentor can do, like, you know, sometimes you can ask your mentor questions. Sometimes they're going to be in your direct group. It's going to be your direct supervisor. Or sometimes they won't even be in your group. It's not a lawyer you work with. It's just someone else in the firm. So maybe not even at your firm, they're at a different firm. So let's say you in your head, you're like, hmm, I have a question. I can't tell if it's a dumb question or not. And I really don't want to ask my boss this, who gets to determine my raises, my salary, my bonus. He gets to make some determination of me of whether I should stay at this firm long-term. Like maybe I shouldn't ask him the question. That's like 50-50, a dumb question. Maybe I'll call up my mentor. He or she will screen that question for me or help me tweak it and, and work at it and workshop it and make it a better question or just kind of be the first line of defense. So I've always made it a rule. I really try not to ask. Um, and even, you know, I'm 10 years out of school. I'm still learning new stuff. You know, sometimes there, there are people that have been practicing lawyers for 40 years. I can still learn new things. I try never to ask the same question twice, but you're certainly allowed 
to ask questions. But if you think that you're maybe in the territory of dumb question or asking a question a second time, that's why you have your mentors step up. They, they, they know how to guide you in the right way. So John, I think that's a great piece of advice. Uh, I, I think it's a great, great piece of advice that you have given people find a mentor, but I just want to break down like mentor is a lot of things. You need to find someone that's, that's looking out for you. And they're not just saying like, Hey, how many hours you build a lot? Good. More, more hours, more billable hours. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's mentor in the sense of a legal mentor, a mentor in the sense of a professional mentor, someone that can help you navigate like not only the actual, some legal questions that you might have, but also navigate things around even the, the legal community in your city, uh, around the bar association, about events, about what to go to, what not to go to, what helps. Um, I mean, I've, I've even gone into my mentor's office and asked how to like format documents because I like, you know, spent 10 minutes trying to uh, stop the bullet point from going three tabs over. Um, so any, any, any type of all of those things that a mentor can do for you. Great one, John. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, listen, I, I think we've done our service in terms of the sports law news, in terms of uh, the kind of just general mentorship. One more piece of business that we'll call it a day. Uh, John's condolences to your uh, New York Giants, my Buffalo Bills. Conlon, we're breaking the streak talking about Cal Ripken and Geno Smith and Eli Manning. We are breaking our streak this week. Conlon will not be joining us on for the Better Edge betting segment, you know, sometimes duty calls and sometimes you record a podcast at midnight and not everybody can wake up for it. Some of us have that dog in them and other ones want to go to sleep because they need to wake up in time for work. Other of us, like you and me, John, John, I don't, I don't really sleep that much. Are you, are you like a nocturnal guy as well? I have a feeling you are. Uh, sort of sometimes. Yeah. I, I usually, I get about five or six hours of sleep and then I just pay for it and say, I'm going to go to sleep early the next night. And then I never do. So I imagine you and I are of the same DNA and what I'm about to say, but when I was in college, I was a guy. We stayed up all night. We played poker. We got like one, two hours of sleep. We, we yeah. you know, freshman, uh, you know, dormitories, good stuff. And I'm like, it was like kind of a waste of time. Like, why was I staying up all night? But then I, it, this was basically my 10,000 hours about how to stay up late at night. I, I, I only need a couple hours. I can function like a relatively normal human being. Now, I'm, not, I'm certainly not a normal person, but, you know, I get, I get a couple hours in. As long as I get like an hour or two and I can function. I don't know if that's going to change as I get older, but, you know. So far, so good. I mean, an hour is kind of insane. I, I, I need I need a minimum of like five. But uh, yeah, I, I haven't gotten to the level of an hour or two sleep yet. My sister, who is also an attorney, he, she taught me the hour rule. She's like, you just need an hour to separate the two days. That that hour rule has becoming more like a three, four hour rule, you know, when, when I can. But when you have kids and the kids can wake up in the middle of the night, like let's say back in the old days, like if I plan to do an all nighter. I'm, I'm, that's just me. If I want to stay up all night, I'm, I'm the only line of defense. But now you get married, wife might get potentially sick one particular night. The kids might wake up screaming. They might throw up. So this is the frequency of uh, late nights in the lust household. They don't happen that often. They happen maybe, I don't know, we'll say every other, every other week we do, we do a late one, but it is what it is. But anyway, why, why random diatribes are always, um, you know, sometimes helpful. Conlon doesn't want to stay up all night with us. That's fine. He is called in his pick to pick this week. For Conlon, who's running pretty kind of, you know, he had a great regular season, hot and cold in the playoffs. Conlon likes the Chiefs plus two and a half. He does not like that Patrick Mahomes is a dog in any way, shape, or form. He says it doesn't smell funny. He says he's not sure if Patrick Mahomes has this minor injury, this high ankle sprain that people actually think. He thinks it's a little bit worse. That line has moved through the zeros. It has gone from Chiefs being a slight favorite to now Chiefs being a slight dog. But it's it's very important that it moved through the zero. Those are a hard move to go from Favorite to underdog, especially in a high-profile game, AFC Conference Championship. So Conlon is not buying it. 
he thinks that uh you know he thinks that he, he invests in patty homes you patty homes do you do do you agree with this picture on you're shaking your head like you don't like this I disagree. Well, we'll see how healthy he is. I mean, it looked like a pretty, he looked like he was very hobbled last week. So I, I don't, I don't agree with it if we're seeing a lot of Chad Henney next week, but I have a lot of faith in Joe Burrow. I watched what he did at LSU. He was great. And he's, he's just, the guy just wins. So uh, I, I would, I would have my money on Joe. Well, uh, use our promo code conduct for $20 conduct detrimental and better edge. We're pretty, we're pretty good friends. We're, we're the best of friends that anybody could have. Just a little, little normal wolf pack we have over here. Okay, John, that'll do it. Appreciate you staying up late with me. And yeah, we, we promise each and every week an episode of Conduct Detrimental Sports Law Podcast. Big announcements on the horizon. And that'll do it, though. For John Nucci, myself, Dan Wallach, and all of us here at Conduct Detrimental, we will see you next time on another episode of Conduct Detrimental. 